Hello and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the show here on WEHC and WISCYs and on podcasts that explores the underlying causes of what divides us, particularly rural-urban divides, but other kinds of things as well. And today on the program, I'm delighted to have as my guest a good friend and colleague, Cynthia Wallace. Cynthia is a member of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. But Cynthia is a tremendous asset to Ruby, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, in the work she does and in her life experience. And on top of everything else, like me, she ran for Congress. So welcome to Two Worlds, One Country, Cynthia. Thank you. Excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Anthony. Um, delighted to have you on. I really am. So let's start with a little bit about your background. I kind of only know you from, um, well, really from the when you started NRP. But um, I know that you had a life before then. So tell us a little bit about your, your <laughs> growing up, your um, okay. education and career trajectory. Just a quick, quick summary of Cynthia Wallace. All right. Well, thank you so much. So I was actually born um, in rural southern Georgia, um, right outside of Savannah. Um, and the part of my little town um, that we lived in um, was actually kind of didn't even have a name, Anthony. They wow. literally called where we lived up the road. <laughs> That's great. We were between towns. <laughs> That's great. I love it. So I lived up the road in the country. Uh, but um, I was very fortunate that, um, you know, with my my parents, um, but my grandparents on both sides of my family were farmers. So I grew up in a farming family. So if anybody knows anything about that, even if your parent isn't a farmer, you do some farming. So I did a little bit of that growing up. That's great. What kind of, uh, but, what kind of farming uh, was it, Cynthia? What did they do? Um, they did... Um, peas and beans and um, I think a little corn, Mm -hmm. but definitely remember picking and shelling a lot of peas and beans. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) White field peas and, uh, you know, those kind of things. So uh, my dad um, was a um, civil rights activist um, and actually um, helped to um, co-found the NAACP in our um, rural town in 1968. Wow. And it was our town was about 13 percent African-American. So I you know, often wonder about, you know, the kind of courage it took to do that in the midst of everything that was happening in the civil rights. Um, I'll say, you know, era to start that in that kind of place. But that, that's truly, he, um, truly putting on, your life on the line is what what that is and his willingness oh, to do that. Oh, yeah. Our, our home actually was shot into like mm. there were def- it was it was dangerous to mm-hmm. do what he was mm-hmm. doing. And he went on to uh, become the first African-American elected to our county commission. And he served for almost 20 years. Hmm. Hmm. So, I, you know, people ask me, when did you get into politics? I basically say before I was born. Yeah, yeah, sounds like. <laughs> it sounds was like. at the dinner table. It was, you know, all the time about mm-hmm. fighting and serving others. Mm-hmm. And my mom um, actually made her career in textile factories. As, and, as um, a sewer or a manager or a marketer or what she do? Um, so it was a, they, it was, um, a place they did carpeting. Hmm. So she worked on a um, machine. Um, she actually started her first job was a, in a sewing factory. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one was a place, um, BASF, which made carpeting for cars oh, and yeah. different things. Oh, yeah. So, um, and actually, when I was in college, I actually uh, worked in a factory in the summer myself. Yeah. For a couple of yeah. summers. Yeah. That was yeah. good paying jobs back then. This yeah. was in the late, early 90s. It was, I had worked at Walmart in high school. And when I got the the opportunity to have a job at the factory, 
my salary went up dramatically as a college student. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, you, <laughs> so you've, you've known some hard, you've known some hard work, and from an early day. Oh yeah, like, yep, yeah. So you grew um, up in that very I, political, kind of nurturing but politically oriented household. And did you feel kind of that you would go in a political direction from an early age, or did that come around a little bit later? Never. <laughs> hmm. It was not a thought. I was definitely always, you know, voted every year, you know, followed politics very closely, you know, voted in off-year elections. Um, But it was really um, right before I moved to Charlotte that I started kind of getting a little inclination to do something political on my own outside of like helping my dad with his election. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, I actually worked on a lieutenant governor race in Georgia. Um, back in 2004, I think probably might have been the last person that had been elected statewide, the last Democrat, prior to uh, Raphael Warnock. Mm-hmm. Like it was a long, that was the last one, I believe, right before wow. I moved to Charlotte. Yeah. Um, but I was very fortunate to go to Spelman College, um, and which is why I say I had no inclination of doing this, because I spent my career 25 years in finance. I went to Spelman College and um, got my bachelor's in mathematics. And then went on to get my master's in statistics and started a um, 25-year career in financial services um, wow. in wow. risk management. And then um, as I ended my career there, I was in regulatory and compliance um, with my company that I'd been at for 20 years. So mm-hmm. this was not where I thought my life was headed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 I can I can verify your math background because anytime you've you've given a presentation that I've seen or you've done a joint one with Ruby, there's lots of charts and and graphs and lots of quantitative stuff woven into the stories you tell. So for sure, you, I can see that math background coming out. Yeah, but it, it's found its purpose and place in this new um, phase of my, my life's trajectory. Yeah, yeah. So So before we get to this new phase, the new rural project, tell me about what moved you from kind of being, you know, an active citizen, voting every election, helping your dad, that stuff, to taking a run at Congress? Tell, tell me a little bit about the motivation and then uh, briefly describe what that race was like for. Well, um, one of the things I, you know, always say um, is that my personal political career really got started by Barack Obama. Mm. <laughs> he was running in, obviously, as we know, in 2007, and I kind of decided that the person I wanted to support. I was looking at all the candidates and then I'm here in Charlotte about two years. And I said, well, how can I help him win, you know, Charlotte? Right. And so I went to an office and said, this was like, what, 15 years ago, I'm a volunteer. How can I help? Mm-hmm. Just walked into an office. And after, um, you know, they got me to work, probably knocking on doors or phone banking or whatever. They sent an email out saying there's a precinct meeting happening near you. And I literally was like, well, What's a precinct? Where where is it? I went to my very first precinct meeting in like February, March 2023 for the Democratic Party. And that literally, you know, set off the trajectory. Um, I just went to my 15th, maybe, precinct meeting last weekend (laughs) with my precinct um, and a whole bunch of folks. And I was even reflecting on the two ladies that I met at that meeting. One introduced me to the Black Political Caucus, which was a very political group here in town, local. And then another lady introduced me to someone that was very entrenched in the Obama campaign. And between the two of them, they exposed me to politics in, in Mecklenburg County. And I basically took off from there, became a precinct chair, became a member of my state executive committee for the Democratic Party. 
became an officer with the Mecklenburg County Democratic Party. And then what directly led to this is I became first vice chair for the 19th Congressional District. So I ultimately in 2017 became the chair of the 19th Congressional District right after the Trump election. Mm-hmm. So everything was focused on like flip the ninth. How are we going to take back Congress? And, and, and so, des- describe for us, because uh, um, we have listeners all over the place, but a yes. chunk of them are here in southwest Virginia, which is the ninth congressional district of Virginia. Okay. And so tell us a little <laughs> bit about the geography of the ninth CD in North Carolina. Just kind of like, where is it within the state? Okay, perfect. So it is on the border of North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, and it starts in Charlotte, which is very rural. I'm urban. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you go from Charlotte towards the east, on that border, you get into all rural uh, rural places mm-hmm. um, with the first um, highest demographic outside of white being um, black. And then the second highest group of color is actually um, Native American mm-hmm. in these um, what the in eight counties. Um, so it was a three, three and a half hour drive from county to county. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of North Carolina is gerrymandering at its best, actually. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it has lots of imagination. So I started doing that that job, and even though it was a volunteer role, I jumped in like, you know, I can't serve folks without them, meeting them where they are, getting to know folks. And so I, I did. Um, I, my history of other chairs in this district position they always expected folks to come to Charlotte. And I said, well, this is a three and a half hour district. Why do they have to come to the far end? Right. You know, because that's the city. So I literally, Anthony, went on Google <laughs> and said, where is the center of this district? And I realized it was Richmond County. I'd never even been to Richmond County. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, we're holding our district convention there. We got to find a place. I don't know where we're going to do it, but everyone should have to drive. And it should be equidistant from the rural people on the far east and the rural places and the city folks in Charlotte. That's a, that's and, a radical, radical step right there, Cynthia. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it, I didn't even think it was, but I'm like, you know, we got to meet the people. And yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. folks appreciated that, mm-hmm. you know, and I went to places that felt like home. Mm-hmm. So, um, Anthony, like, you know, it really reconnected me to my um, that small town girl who had had a lot of great opportunities from Atlanta to moving around and even a little stint in Paris. And then here I end up back in the country yeah, and loving every minute of it, yeah, yeah, loving the people, but also seeing the struggles because most of my family still lives in rural Georgia, but seeing the struggle, but seeing the opportunity and the potential. Yeah. And literally in that process was the very first time I ever even imagined I might run to run for office. So that, and run to represent folks who felt like me, yeah. urban in that district. It was urban and rural. And I'm like, I'm a small town girl at heart, at my core. And I've had some excellent opportunities that have been allowed to me by, you know, living in some of these um, urban settings. So right, I'm right. like, this district is me. So, yeah, you know. And um, that, that kind of awakening and, or whatever you ahead. want to call it was, was 2017, 2018. Was that when that was taking place? So, yeah. So 2017. I kind of had a little inkling, but we had an awesome candidate who was running. So we were focused on winning that seat. Um, And this is actually an infamous district. Um, We actually had real absentee ballot fraud in the 2018 election. Hmm. They actually, um, the Board of Elections ended up throwing out that election of 2018. The first time I think it happened in 30 or 40 years. And we had a redo election in 2019. And unfortunately, our candidate didn't win. um, But... You know, at that point, I'd, you know, been entrenched in the district 
folks, you know, really saw my love and care for them and my dedication. And they say I got recruited. Uh, but also the Republican who won that year, um, he won in like September it was a special election. In the first um, couple of months, he missed 33% of the vote. So December 2019 comes around and folks were like, why are you not running for this seat? Mm -hmm. And I jumped in the race. I want you to say in just ever so few words what the campaign was like and what you learned from it. So the first three months were exhilarating. I was in every county all the time. They saw me everywhere in person. Mm -hmm. And then the primary was in March. I was fortunate. I got 56% of the vote in a field of four. Wow. Um, wow. So no primary. Um, and then the pandemic happened. Mm. And so right after our election, all of a sudden the pandemic happened. So we had to go indoors um, and do all the work on Zoom and virtual. Um, and I would say that's probably the biggest impact is not having that ability to get face to face with folks in that 2020 election. I think it hurt um, my campaign along with several others. Yeah. It's very hard to reach and connect rural people in particular when you're just, you know, trying to do Zooms and doing things virtually. Yeah. It was exhilarating. We got about 44 percent of the vote. Um, so not bad. But, you know, we, we weren't able to, to go across the finish line. But that leads directly into how New Rural Project started. So you came out of that campaign disappointed, no doubt. And then you started New Rural Project. What was the impetus? Why Why did you and your colleague, Helen, start NRP? So during the campaign, I actually decided that, um, you know, whether I won or lost, my next trajectory in life was going to be service-filled, whether I was serving in Congress or figuring out something else. So I didn't win. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And Helen and I, Helen um, Prost-Mills, who um, co-founded the organization with me, actually ran for North Carolina Senate 25. Hmm. And so her um, four counties intersected my eight. And so we had gotten to know each other. This was her second run. So we got to know each other actually when she ran her first time in 2018. Mm -hmm. And she never stopped running. She never met left the people, which is something I admire. Mm -hmm. And so the two of us kept talking after the election about, you know, the folks we were hoping to represent, about what was going to happen to them with the folks who won our opponents and the things that we wanted to hopefully change that would not be addressed. And we started looking at the numbers, um, as I talked about, 25 years in finance. So I immediately said, well, what happened in this race? Like, why didn't I win Scotland County? I lost it by 100 votes. Yeah. Honestly, which still sticks in my cross. But traditionally, <laughs> Blue County, the first time it went red. Um and so we started looking at the numbers and seeing that, you know, it wasn't, you know, 2020, everything being said was supposed to be historic for, you know, voting, mm -hmm. but it wasn't historic for everyone. When you looked at turnout for African-American voters, Hispanic voters, this wasn't a history turning 2020. And so what it said is in these rural places and specifically just looking at the rural places, not even looking at Charlotte, looking at the rural places where there wasn't, there hasn't been traditionally a lot of investment in the last, you know, several years in organizing, in reaching the people, doing it on a day-to-day -day basis and not just a few months before election. Hi, come vote for me and then disappear. Right. So they, we both still wanted to help the community. We both wanted to still make change and said, how can we do it? No one's working in these counties that we were running in. Not No one, but very, very few people. Mm -hmm. um, and so we know this work, as we just talked about, is relational. And we had some amazing relationships already built in these seven rural counties that we wanted to build upon to 
to really do something to help. Five of the seven are the most impoverished in the whole state of North Carolina. And so we knew there were a lot of just basic needs that weren't being filled. And how could we do that with our organization? At the same time, helping them connect the dots between their critical issues and how voting and being civically engaged could actually bring about some of those changes that they want and they need, frankly. Yeah. So, so, th- so this is a said, big... let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you started New Rural Project in 2020? April 2021. April 2021. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You... Election was in November. And my last day in my company was in January. And by April, we were founding this organization. Wow. 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 So you guys do some really amazing things and interesting things to engage people. But let me let me see if I've got this right. So when you looked at the numbers, you saw that part of the reason you didn't prevail, uh, and we could probably say more broadly Democrats, um, was not just that people were shifting to Republicans, but that black voters and Hispanic voters were dropping out, that they were they were pulling away from voting at all, probably because they felt like they weren't getting anything out of the voting. Nothing much was happening. And so you thought that winning elections, uh, a big part of that was getting people back into the political game. Is that right? That's that's correct. I mean, it wasn't just about my race, though. Um, I definitely <clears throat> had the data for those counties. Um, but one of the things I'd even seen as a district chair, and I've been telling my counties at that point, was you have an engagement problem. Your mm-hmm. turnout numbers aren't where they need to be. Mm-hmm to help even that the previous candidate who um, didn't win, if some of those blue counties even had notched up a little bit in turnout, he actually would be in Congress right now. Mm-hmm. And so I've mm-hmm. been telling them that for, for years. And then now having a chance to really get a break and look at the numbers and the fact that in North Carolina, we had a Supreme Court court justice seat was decided by 401 votes. Statewide. Out of 5 million. Good Lord. And so... Honestly, that was the background. It was less about my race because I lost by six points. So I knew I, you know, I needed a lot more. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people cast aside rural vote, votes and rural voices and because they're too small. Mm-hmm. And the case we started making day one to our own rural people is, you know how important you are. You're so important that in Anson County, 2,500 African-American, Hispanic folks didn't show up. And Sherry Beasley lost his race by 401 votes. Yeah. What if you had gotten a few more of those votes? You, this small rural county that people don't make as important as they, you should be, could have made the difference. Yeah. Or Richmond or Scotland. So any one of them. Right. And so we started with the premise of how important these counties are because of a race being won that narrowly. But also at the same time, looking at and across our seven counties, there was like about um, 50,000 people who did not vote of color in that 2020 election. Race is decided by 401 votes out of 5 million. And in these seven counties alone, 50,000 folks of color didn't show up. And 50,000 in seven counties, seven, uh, I think, all in that ninth district, might have swayed your election, too, or at least gotten you awful daggone close if you if you were at 44%. It would have made, it would, yes. Yeah, that's pretty right. incredible. But, that's but pretty it incredible. definitely would have impacted a statewide race. And yeah. so also we were trying to tell folks in the state, like, don't discard these small counties. They are just as important right. as Charlotte or Raleigh. Right, right. That's a that's a song a number of us have been singing for a while. And I think maybe finally there's a little bit of openness at, at various state party yes. levels to hearing that. So, golly day, we're running through the time so fast. So I need you to 
let's jump into how you do it. Because I know you've had some success, some rather spectacular successes in re-engaging people. But if you can, um, if you can put on your your urban Charlotte hat now and talk fast, <laughs> tell us, tell us. Well, I can talk fast. I can tell, talk fast. Tell us just so, kind of the core of the strategy that NRP uses to get people back in the game. Well, we knew out the gate we were not going to walk into these counties with voter registration um, pads in hand and say let's register you to vote. Folks in these places are very economically distressed, and as well as hierarchy and need. You know, their food unstable. You know, housing, etc. So you've got to start with working on what concerns them. And so we did, and we were concerned. So we actually started our work with vaccine um, advocacy. So doing vaccine outreach in these rural places, mm. which impacts their health, their jobs, economics. Like if you had COVID, you couldn't go to work, right. <laughs> you know, right. and it wasn't so easily easy to obtain in these places because of lots of historical reasons. And we did it in places of color, in his, you know, communities of color as well. And so we did that, bringing about the vaccine, but also other things, free food, free clothes, you know, from a food bank, of, um, you know, or a, a shelter, like bringing other needs, bringing other resources to learn where you can get health care, um, et cetera, giving out gift cards um, for every shot. So we basically took our GOTV, get out the vote model and turn it get out the vaccine. We knocked That's on doors. Great. We canvassed in those communities leading up to the event. We um, phone bank leading up to the events. We got partners in the community, people who are not political. Also, that was our, one of our first things is how do we engage people who aren't political but are entrenched and care about their community? Yeah. And so we got uh, 501c3s to be a part of our work because it, we didn't care what party someone was in. Mm -hmm. We were just trying to help bring a need to the community. And so with that, we developed some excellent partnerships. That led us, in, that was in 2021, but we also trained people on canvassing. We trained people on phone banking. They were just doing it to get people to a vaccine event. Sororities we worked with. Yeah, so that, but but it was the training, the techniques of the doing techniques. it. The techniques, okay. Was what okay. we were also um, able to then, and even the folks who partnered with us, um, some sororities, came back the next year when 2022, we were focused a little bit now more on election. Mm -hmm. They're like, hey, we have a social justice arm in our organization. We'd love to partner with you and go out and canvas and outdoors to get people out to vote. And yeah. once again, we were doing it without, you know, worrying about political party, but picking a list of folks who were voters of color and who traditionally weren't coming out to vote. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. and right. I know you know this real quick as a candidate, you know, you're focused on getting the people out to vote who are most likely to vote and that are most likely to vote for you. Right. right. Who's talking to these? least likely voters. So we right. want our organization to be additive to the process. Right. And so with that, you know, we started knocking on doors with folks we had built relationships with in 2021. Um, and, um, you know, that kind of led us to, you know, working through the May primary and then bringing on even more folks and running a five, a six to seven day paid canvassing program leading up to the November 2022 election. Wow. Wow. So I want you to wrap up. I wish we had another half hour, but we don't. I want you to wrap up by talking a little bit about the, as one good example, I'm not sure if I remember his name, but I think it's Trayon. But one of the people that you engaged in this way first, not, not by saying, hey, you need to go register and then go out and vote, but you engaged him more at the level of uh, needs in your barbershop program. And then you 
you had just like a tremendous impact on him, and he's one example. Can you can you kind of wrap up the conversation by talking a little about that? Yeah. So I'll, we uh, one of the things that you know, as I, you mentioned, I'm a data person, so we also looked at what population had the lowest turnout and had had the most downturn from like an Obama election, which is when it was a high watermark for black mm-hmm. voters and Hispanic voters. Mm-hmm. And that was black men under 40. And so with that in mind, we actually, um, we also did some focus groups. And so I could talk a lot about, it. we did very research oriented work with mm-hmm. focus groups as well. Um, and we found a collegial relationship with black men. So we took all of that and launched the barbershop conversation series. So we met Tian at our first um, barbershop in Anson County, which is actually where we're headquartered. And he was excited, got to meet his um, county commissioner for the first time after one of our barbershop sessions. It was a group of four weekly sessions focused on civic engagement, focused on crime, focused on entrepreneurship. So things that they care about, Mm -hmm. bringing in other black men from the community to share and have a good dialogue with them. Well, Tian got to meet his county commission got something he was interested in put on the agenda at the county commission. And then Tian and two of his other friends have come together and started the Sand Hills Voter Initiative. They've started their own group out of the barbershop. Mm. They've already had civic events that are entertainment with basketball. Plus, we come in and talk about voting. Another group comes in and registers voters. And they did that to the tune of hundreds of people in the fall. And this They've all already happened- had a black male from the barbershop. After the barbershop. And this all happened in the span of, like, less than a year, right? Less than a year. Our yeah. first barbershop was in March. <clears throat> so he, went, he went from being... the summer... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, barbershop in March. He and a couple of his high school friends got inspired from that. And, like, what are we going to do for our own community? Started their group. By September, they were hosting a four or 500-person alumni basketball tournament that also incorporated civic engagement. Wow. That's like your dream. I mean, dream. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, you hear about <laughs> throw a pebble in the water and you get ripples, but this was like, uh, I don't know what, a, a tsunami of activity from that pebble. That's just, imagine if you had those kinds of results all the time with somebody taking the ball and running with it like that. That's just incredible. Well, we got a second group that came out of that barbershop too. So I won't, I know we're, we're out of time. Yeah. But the last thing I'll say is one of the things that we believe is that, you know, we've got to empower the folks not us coming in, like we've got the answers. That's another thing. Our work, we say, begins and ends with listening. Mm -hmm. And that's why we started with focus groups because we don't have the answers and we want the folks that we're working with to come up with their own solution Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and know their own power. And I always say that a 30-some-year-old black man talking to another 30-some-year-old black man about voting is going to get far more results than me. So those three men now engaged in this or in another county where they're now on like their county boards and commissions, like them talking about that is going to get their own peer set excited and hopefully back to the poll. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the proverbial snowball rolling down the hill. When you have folks like that who are peers and understand where folks are coming from, and they're the ones leading the charge, uh, and all because New Rural Project got the wheels turning through your engagement with people. It, it's pretty, it's just stunning because most people think you can't do this. Most people think you simply can't bring people off the sidelines. If they've decided politics isn't for them, there's nothing to be done. And you've proven them wrong. That's just so exciting. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah. This definitely wasn't on our goal list, but we're excited that it happened and how we keep more, engage more folks. And like you said, I think they're going to talk to more folks that are engaged with them 
connected to us, et cetera. So. Well, Cynthia, it's clear that I'm going to have to have you back before too long because we really just, I think, hit the tip of the iceberg. I'm sorry to make you rush through what are much deeper and richer stories of your work, but I've been thrilled here on this edition of Two Worlds, One Country to be able to hear just a little bit of the experience of Cynthia Wallace, my, my friend and colleague through the Ruby, who has launched with Helen Probst Mills the new rural project in a seven-county area of rural North Carolina. And in a matter of just a couple of years, they are shaking things up and actually getting people who had given up on politics to themselves becoming advocates for people engaging in their community, in the civic life, and in political life. Just an incredible success story. So, Cynthia, thank you so much for being on Two Worlds. And, of course, we'll be chatting about Ruby stuff before long, but so glad to have you as a guest. Thank you so much.